Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on C-Jam's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on C-Jam 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Research. My latest research, um, my research kind of took a pause, um, because of COVID, I was going to go intern with the DA, and that got canceled because of COVID. Uh, so I kind of was looking for a mentor to work with. And what I'm really working on now is just trying to just develop that empathy uh, needed in the field um, of forensic science when you deal with death um, and when you deal with children who have died. You know, it's a really sensitive subject, so it can be really important to know how to handle that when you're talking with parents or talking with the bereaved. And there's a professor here in the forensic science department who is a medical legal death investigator. Um, he did a presentation last fall um, about empathy, um, being empathetic. Uh, you know, being sensitive um, around these subjects, and I really wanted to learn more about that, and he told me that he would be happy to take me to the crime lab, uh, which is downtown uh, in Syracuse, and introduce me to people who are on the child death review team, which I think I mentioned possibly before on your show. It is a, just to recap, a child death review team is a group of people who are professionals from different fields that come together to assist the medical examiner with their cause of death, that the cause of death diagnosis that they're going to give to uh, a death, whether it's a homicide, a suicide, or natural causes or accidental. So with... Um, Disabled children, typically um, there has been nobody on a child death review team that is skilled in disability studies. Typically on a child death review team, you would have social worker, teacher, attorney, somebody from the Department of Child Welfare, Department of Human Services, Sometimes a pastor, a priest, or a rabbi will be on the child death review team. 
people that knew the family when the child was alive, that can give the, some insight about that child's life to the medical examiner. Because a medical examiner needs to know details. Um, emergency services can be on the child death team because they went to the scene and they saw the scene. They were the first on the scene. So they can be very valuable. Um, the medical legal death investigator can be on the child death review team. So these are all very valuable contributors to a homicide case or to a death case, whatever the cause might be. And as we've seen with disabled children, there are high numbers of homicides of disabled children. So I think it would be important to have somebody on the child death review team that knows sign language. Um, or at least somebody that can come in that knows sign language and assist the team with the diagnosis and with the background um, of the case and also somebody who understands disability. And I want somebody that understands disability from a disability studies perspective um, that understands disability rights and ideally would be disabled themselves. You know, not just somebody who um, has a medical model idea of disability and looks at it as a defect. We don't want that. We want a very specific disability study professional. So, um, yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, has COVID impacted from a mental health standpoint the tendency towards crimes such as these? Do you find that things have uh, picked up any with the pandemic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I've kind of branched off into studying criminal law in the past year, so I haven't looked, I, my research is kind of changing a little bit as I delve more into learning law and taking law classes, so I haven't been following a lot of the helpful cases the way that I used to. We also have kind of a new direction and a new director with the Coalition for Responsible Home Education. Um, but I can tell you crime has gone up uh, in a lot of different ways and across the United States because of COVID. Uh, crime rates are higher. There's also been problems where there's been less funding for police. You know, people are losing money, um, which some people have a problem with. Some people think it's a good thing. Depends on your perspective. So there's been um, more crimes and more homicides. I am not sure about the data on disabled children. I don't think we really have that yet. So do you think that uh, by adding someone with a disability to the examiner team, as you mentioned, they'll be able to more get inside the head of the victim, be able to understand from a disability standpoint some of the events that might lead to, to the crime itself? Absolutely. We want somebody, ideally, that has a really strong disability rights background, who is in the disability community, who has a disability, who understands also deaf culture, and somebody who's friends with interpreters or perhaps is fluent in sign language, because, yes, they will be able to have a much better understanding of what that victim was going through, and also being more aware of what their parents knew, um, because a lot of times people don't realize how manipulative these uh, perpetrators are. And somebody in the disability community, they can see that because it happens more. You know, it happens. They're used to it. They can see 
people don't know saying what the parents know uh, about that child or the parents know about that child's disability, the parents know what they're capable of. But they might be making that up and lying about it. And people might believe them because they don't know anything about the disability. They don't know anything about disability culture. So the parent can manipulate people and use people in that way. But if you have somebody who frequently works with disabled people who is disabled, they can see through that. And that's really important because these perpetrators are highly manipulative. And they're just going to lie and lie. And they just don't want to go to prison. And they know that's where they're headed a lot of times. So they will do anything they can to not have to go to prison and to make this look like an accident. And because there are so many stereotypes about disabled people, they can get away with that sometimes. Like, oh, the, you know, the kid was beating himself, you know, the kid was hurting himself. That's a common one. You know, um, that's often not the case, the case at all. You know, so it's good to have somebody that knows that. So, for a victim with a disability, one who makes it through such a crime, do you find that they might be more willing to talk to someone they can relate to, someone with a disability, but they have a better chance of opening up and saying, this is what happened to me? Absolutely, absolutely, especially deaf person. So, if you have a deaf victim or deaf person who is involved somehow in a case, especially a child, they are going to be a lot more willing to open up to somebody who is an interpreter, who is fluent in sign language and understands deaf culture than they are just some random person. You know, somebody, we are already as deaf people and disabled people used to discrimination so much that you expect it. But if there's somebody that's talking to you, communicating with you in the way that you understand best, that can really get through to that person and get those answers that law enforcement and the court might otherwise not be able to get. And yes, it does make them more comfortable. I mean, that's the goal. That would be the goal um, with any kind of disability to talk to somebody who gets it, not somebody who looking down on them and doesn't get them. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Okay, thanks, Sam. Of course. In this segment of our show, Megan Hines will be telling us about Power Hockey Canada. So, can you tell me a bit about Power Hockey Canada? Absolutely, yeah. Power Hockey Canada is an organization that looks to improve uh, you know, more opportunities for players across the country to participate in power hockey. Uh, and for those who aren't familiar with the sport of power hockey, it's a sport for people with physical disabilities who use a power wheelchair. Uh, it's based off the rules of ice hockey, uh, but it's played on a gym floor. And it's, um, you know, it's a distinctively inclusive sport in that a lot of individuals who play power hockey are not able to necessarily participate in, in more kind of commonly known parasports because limited upper body strength, that kind of thing. So we have, you know, individuals like myself with muscular dystrophy or, you know, very limited to, to no upper body strength who may attach or stick to a wheelchair uh, and that kind of thing. And so, yeah, Power Hockey Canada is really looking to, like I said, get more programs up and running, get more awareness for the sport so everyone can really experience the benefits of the sport um, that myself and my fellow players have. So... When you say it's played in a power wheelchair, I would assume it's uh, more like a sport chair because maneuverability and speed and just creating a high-performance game. Yeah, so in, um, on, in, in international rules, yes, uh, sport chairs are more commonly used. 
So, um, and that, but in, within Canada and actually North America, we actually have a rule that it has to be your everyday chair. Now, the reason for that is because, unfortunately, um, within Canada and the U.S., there isn't really any funding available for sports chairs. And sports chairs are quite expensive, anywhere from ten, twenty thousand dollars and up, depending on kind of the needs of the individual. And so, just to make sure that you know finance is not a barrier to participation, we do require individuals to play in the everyday chair. But absolutely, on, on the international side of things, where in a lot of countries, especially in Europe, where there is additional funding uh, for players to purchase a sports chair, um, the sports chair is used, and they're they're pretty incredible. They're very fast. They you know, turn on a dime, and they definitely kind of um, positively impact the individual's uh, performance in the game, for sure. Despite uh, use of an everyday chair, I assume it's still a pretty fast-paced and high-energy sport. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's uh, definitely intense. Uh, I can say that from me as spectator, but also a player myself. Um, our chairs go about 8.5 to 9 miles an hour, so they're still very fast, um, and uh, it's just like it's as, as intense as any ice hockey game uh, that people would, would imagine. And so there's, you know, a little bit of, a, definitely a lot of competition in there. And um, But it's definitely a very safe game. Like, I've been playing myself for about 20 years at this point. Uh, and I've had no injuries, really, and very minimal damage, if any, to my chair. So uh, definitely a very safe sport. Uh, but absolutely high intensity, for sure. So... How does Power Hockey Canada go about recruiting players and reaching out to those who might be interested? Yeah, so we have about seven programs currently across the country, and uh, over the last couple of years, my colleagues and I have been partnering with different pairs organizations and uh, local, you know, disability organizations, uh, you know, OTs, PDs, everyone we can kind of reach out to across the country to get some more programs up and running. And so we have about three to four programs that are ready to go, but with COVID, unfortunately, as with many other programs, it's kind of been at a bit of a standstill. But, uh, you know, we have, they have all the resources in place and are going to reach out to players. So, um, yeah, that's kind of some of the things we have underway. In terms of reaching those players, we um, try to have an, an online presence through our social media um, and, like I said, reach out to different networks, really to get the word out there because, you know, Power hockey, as much as kind of us in the sport know, know the game, love the game, um, it's still a sport that not many people know about. When I, you know, even when I say I play power hockey, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, sledge hockey, that's a really cool sport. And I'm like, no, no, like sledge hockey is cool, but this is definitely different uh, than that. So a lot of what we're trying to do is really get that awareness out there. Um, but if anyone, you know, across the country is interested in getting, um, getting involved or getting a league started in their uh, city or... Uh, wherever, definitely encourage you to reach out uh, to us. You can uh, check us out on powerhockeycanada.com or reach out to me directly at megan at powerhockeycanada.com and would love to partner with anyone as we're always looking for champions in, in local areas to, to help us get things up and running. So, what are some of the key benefits that a power hockey player might enjoy beyond just uh, being part of a team and being out in a high-octane sport? Definitely. There's so many. Oh my goodness. Um, of the competition, 100%. Uh, just a way to kind of get your competitive, uh, you know, spirit and all again, like the physical activity aspect of it. Um, but there's so much more to that beyond the sport um, itself. You know, there's a community, like you said. A lot of us call it our power hockey family. Um, there's a mentorship aspect that's really pivotal to the sport. You know, uh, th there is no real age barrier to the participation. 
a lot of individuals start when they're younger, maybe 10, 11, 12, and we have players up in their, you know, 50s and 60s and older and stuff. And so, you know, to give you an example, when I started playing uh, when I was younger, I really looked after those older players uh, to really help mentor me both in the sport, but also outside the sport in the sense that, you know, I was going to post-secondary education. I was living on my own. I was looking to get attendance um, to, to help my personal care. And, you know, these are people that I could look up to and say, first off, hey, if they can do it, why can't I? Uh, but also learn from them and be like, hey, I'm, you know, encountering this difficulty. What should I do? Uh, kind of thing. And so it's really just uh, about creating that sense of community that we can all learn from each other, uh, create those lifelong friendships and bonds that, you know, have really changed my life the better absolutely so is there any moment in your time with the sport stands out for you that you'd like to share mm, that's a good question um i think there are so many and to be honest like a lot of the experiences i've had uh throughout my life i think i've attributed a lot of them to being uh, able to play power hockey and be part of this great sport um i think a couple that really stand out to me probably are the opportunity to represent my country. Um, I was selected for Team Canada to participate in the 2018 World Championships. Um, also in 2019, I uh, was selected for Team Canada to go to Australia to compete in the 2019 Australian National Club Team Championships. And then um, this summer being able to go to the 2022 World Championships. And so I think that's something that I never dreamed of, that I'd be able to represent my country wear the Canadian maple leaf on my jersey and, um, you know, be part of such an amazing team. Uh, and so I think that's kind of probably one of the biggest things that stand out for more of the competitive aspect in terms of my power hockey career. Um, but like I said earlier, I think just generally the connections I've been able to make, the friendships I've been able to make, I, I met my partner that's through power hockey. And so, um, yeah, it's really just um, has changed my life absolutely for the better like to thank you for taking the time out to do this but if you can stay on the line for a sec that'd be great absolutely thank you of course handy link will be right back after these commercial messages so stay tuned so you're hanging with your inner circle maybe you're making cocktails maybe you're packing bowls even while we're distancing it's important to remember Alcohol and cannabis each mess with your driving skills. Be cool. Make sure you and your friends get home safe. Take a cab if you need to. A few bucks could save a life. And we can do it again next weekend. A message from Arrive Alive, Drive Sober. Link sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Cape Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor, Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, we heard about Power Hockey Canada from Megan Hines and Kate Pollock gave us an update on her research. In this segment of our show, Ariel Sloan will be telling us a little bit about Disabilities Ministry. So, 
can you tell me a little bit about your experiences with disabilities ministry? Um, well, I kind of have it on two sides, because I live with cerebral palsy, um, and so I'm a minister that lives with the challenges of negotiating um, old buildings that were that are not necessarily adapted, um, but I'm also a caregiver for um, my husband's handicapped daughter, who is 42 but going on four. She has physical and intellectual um, disabilities and lives with us and accompanies us to church. So I have experience both as ministry personnel and as a caregiver. And I was involved in the United Church's um, uh, disability working group a couple of years ago. So, what are some of the benefits of having an active spiritual life for someone with a disability? One of the stories that um, I told at another interview was that when I was a child, um, my mother used to say, God made everything and God doesn't make junk. It's <laughs> kind of how she said it. Um, and in the Bible... The very first opening lines of the Bible, God says, God looked at everything God made and called it good. And so I think my mother was my first theologian who said, you know, you're just made, God made you different. Some people have brown hair, some people have black hair, some people have blonde hair, some people have blue eyes, some people have brown eyes, some people have cerebral palsy, and other people have other problems. You're just... You just made the way God made you. And that was a foundation for me. Um, and so as I reflected on that later in life, um, there's another passage. Um, Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect, but perfect in the sense of, in the Bible, one of the things um, that phrase means is not without error, or without challenge, or without difficulty. It means... Um, be fully and completely who you were created to be. Um, and so, at one point in my life when I was younger, I thought I would have liked to have been a figure skater. <laughs> well, I wasn't perfect for being a figure skater, um, but I think I'm perfect to be a minister. Um, I was made to be a minister, and I think um, uh, having that foundation has also helped me to come to terms with living with cerebral palsy and also trying to um, um, help my stepdaughter participate fully in worship. She's absolutely perfect exactly as she is for the things that she is able to do within the church and within our family life and in the groups that she interacts with. So, does having a disability yourself help shape how you're able to minister to others? I mean, having that sense of experience, you're not just preaching cold, I'd imagine. It's coming at a very human standpoint. Another another anecdote in my first pastoral charge, um, I had a lot of older folks who would stop coming to church because they were afraid that, you know, they might faint or they might fall and they might be embarrassed or something like that. And so one day as I was um, leading a confirmation service, I stepped backwards and and tripped and fell over a kneeler <laughs> and I stood up and I said to everyone in the congregation now you see you don't have to worry about because whatever might happen to you in in a worship service 
Um, I'm just as embarrassed as anybody. So we're all on the same the same footing. <laughs> so I, I think that helps at some point. Um, I've also ministered to, to people who um, don't have a handicap, um, but who are uh, at least not a physical one, um, but may be handicapped in life by life circumstances. I used to do prison chaplaincy. And um, an inmate who I was working with at one time said to me, well, you know, I've been in prison. It's going to be a handicap for the rest of my life. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? It might be, but I'm proof positive that you can have a full and complete life even if you have a handicap. Um, and I think there was a lot of credibility for him, even though he didn't have a physical disability. Uh, I think that was the... That was I could tell on his face that it was something that struck him. Um, so I think I have some credibility in that sense. So, do you find that there are any myths or stereotypes concerning a person with a disability? And if so, how does your ministry help to overcome those? Um, I think one of the... I don't know if it's a myth or a stereotype, but... Um, I know that one of the challenges um, for a lot of people living with disabilities is um, when I was when I was first ordained, I was settled in a pastoral church. They didn't they didn't have a choice but to but to take me. One of the questions was, "What do you tell them about your handicap?" I didn't interview, um, and I was settled. Uh, and so, what do you tell? Because what do people imagine? Um, and sometimes I think, without wanting to, people imagine that you are less capable than you are, or um, that, um, yeah, I think they jump to conclusions about what you won't be able to do a little bit quicker, rather than having a conversation about what you are able to do and what, what accommodations you can have. I know that some people have found it more difficult. Um, now that there is no longer a transfer and settlement process um, in place in the United Church of Canada, it's difficult to find work as a minister, even though they have all the training and the and, and have been deemed uh, ready for ministry in the United Church of Canada, more difficult to find employment because of their handicap. Um, one other challenge, I would think, is that people think that... Um, uh, being inclusive of people who live with disability is only about ramps or elevators. <laughs> um, you know, oh, we have a we have an elevator, or uh, unless they know someone. So you have there are some churches that will offer if there's a minister who knows sign language or something um, might offer that kind of um, adaptation. But um, I find that even our liturgy is something that people don't think about when they think about how do we include people who can't read our bulletins or can't read our, our uh, PowerPoints. My stepdaughter um, can't read. Um, the only thing that she can participate in are things that she can learn by heart. So she can sing hymns if she sings them often enough to learn them by heart. But in the United Church, our liturgies are, we, we are very creative and we reinvent the wheel almost every week. Um, but for her, she can only participate in things like the Lord's Prayer and then read things that she's learned, learned by heart. So I think we still have a lot of um, work to do 
and we're not always aware that um, being inclusive is about women. Elevators and ramps and adaptable washrooms. Light, thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Alright. Disability ministry may in fact have something in common with disability in sport. Stop and think about it. The spirit is free. People can achieve great things. They believe that they have capabilities and are given the right encouragement. The same is true about being part of a sports team. Being out there, enjoying the moment, being part of something greater. No matter where you're coming from, what you believe, there's always potential in life. No matter what the disability may be, a person can always find something deeper, something meaningful in their lives. There's yet to be a medical book that can account for human strength and resolve. The fact is, if a person's determined enough given the right opportunities, in the right moments, they can and will surprise. But the fact is, things are only impossible until they're not. People are always coming up with new innovations, new ways of just exploring their own potential. And that is something we must all work towards, no matter our hopes, no matter our dreams. I maintain there's always a way. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal. So get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.